0: Good morning, TCC. My name is Florence Salaski, and my husband Ray and I have been attending TCC for the past twelve years or so. Our scripture reading this morning is John thirteen thirty one to thirty eight. When he was gone, Jesus said, "Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will glorify the Son in Himself, and will glorify Him at once." My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Florence. Well, a number of years ago... Um, I rediscovered skiing. I, uh, I used to ski as a young child and into young, uh, as a young adult. Uh, and then when we moved out east, uh, there weren't the mountains that we have uh, in such close proximity. And uh, with young kids, it was just something that we didn't really do. And to be totally honest, even though I say I've rediscovered it, I did discover that I don't really enjoy it that much. Uh, You know, being out in the the cold for extended periods of time, um, having something that is strapped so tightly to your feet that it cuts off circulation um, is just not usually my idea of a great time. You know, give me a a golf course or even uh, maybe a beach. Um, but I did it because it was something that our kids enjoyed doing. It was something that we would do together. Um, I think Lucas, in particular, really enjoyed it, and uh, and so we've had some great times just going skiing together. Although in the last couple of years, maybe not as much as we did even um, just previous to that. Those of you who ski would know that when you are skiing, unbeknownst to you, well, you know it is uh, is that you have an audience, right? Um, because there are people high on a chairlift that are looking down at you as you come creening down the hill, sometimes, you know, uh, right underneath the chair, sometimes to the right or to the left, sometimes you go underneath the chair, but there's always somebody watching. And when somebody falls spectacularly, right? They just completely wipe out. Skis are flying. Uh, sometimes you'll actually hear cheers, right? Because everybody's like, oh, that was awesome. Why don't you do that again? Uh, no, thank you. Um, our kids would call it uh, a garage sale. You know, a pair of skis over here and some poles over here. Uh, they're up for the taking. Or maybe, as Oprah would say, a ski for you and a ski for you. Um, whatever. The problem is... When you're the one sitting up on the chairlift, you may be tempted to smugly look down on others from the safety of the chairlift. And you think to yourself, well, that'll never happen to me, right? Watch out, because you know you may be, in fact, the next one. Now, there's a spiritual context for this pride comes before a fall. Or as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. In the passage that Florence read for us that we're considering today, this is in fact what happens to Peter. We're just starting a new series called Living the Life, and it's a study on the last words of Jesus. Words found beginning in John chapter 13 and extending through chapter 17, which leads us into chapters 18 and 19. That's usually what comes next after 17. Um, And it records for us details of his arrest and his scam trials, the crucifixion, death, and burial. Then on Easter Sunday, it will be in John 20 and the resurrection appearances. And then the following Sunday after Easter, we'll have one more Sunday to wrap it up in John 21. But the question that we're going to be asking over these weeks is really this. What is the life that Jesus has called us to? What is the life that Jesus is called to? We're going to talk about living the life. What does that life look like? And so in these verses, Jesus shares what it looks like, in fact, to follow him, to live as his disciples. And I, for one, want to know that, right? If I'm going to declare my allegiance to Jesus, I want to know what's expected of me. And that's what Jesus lays out, really, in these um, chapters. And so, um, just setting the scene a little bit this morning, Jesus has gathered with his disciples in the upper room. That's why scholars refer to this portion in these chapters as the upper room discourse or the teaching that then took place in the upper room And in the chronology of events between Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we then remember and celebrate on Palm Sunday, through to his crucifixion and death and burial on Good Friday, and then ultimately his resurrection on Easter Sunday, this event that's recorded for us takes place on Thursday night. And they gathered there so that Jesus could share with them what was on his heart, He knew what was about to happen, and he wanted to prepare his disciples for it. And so there they are, having a meal together. And they were preparing to celebrate the Passover as well. And so there they are, reclining around the table, much like a family would in that context. But it was in this context, then, that Jesus took the bread and the cup of wine. And reading from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verses 26 through 29... We read what what happened there. He says, while they were eating, so this is the same meal that, that they were sharing here as in that John is talking about. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so as Jesus uh, takes the bread and the cup, he's clearly telling them that he would be leaving them, that his body was going to be broken and that his blood would be shed, that he was going to, in fact, die. That preparation is always helpful, isn't it? And, of course, this act, which would become known as the Lord's Supper or Communion, was established as a way to remember, in fact, what Jesus did and gives us an opportunity then to thank Him for what He did. Now, it's interesting that John doesn't actually include the specific details about the Lord's Supper, choosing instead to focus on Jesus' teaching and some of what happened that night. And he records what some of the other gospel writers don't. And as we saw last week, in an act of humility, service, and love, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, setting an example for us. Do as I have done for you. And so now, as we re-enter the scene there in the upper room, Judas has left because he has made a choice to betray Jesus. And so Jesus is left there with his 11 remaining disciples. And by Judas leaving the room, he sets the rest of the events that are about to follow in motion. Jesus' arrest is coming soon. It takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, picking up the account in verse 31. When he was gone, so he's referring to Judas. He had left. He was gone. Jesus said... Now, the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will glorify the Son in Himself and will glorify Him at once. Now, you read that, and you can kind of get twisted up in knots a little bit. What is He referring to? And really, when Jesus is talking about being glorified, He's simply referring to His death and resurrection, in that the cross itself would bring glory to Jesus, And so far from being a devastating loss, the cross is in fact a victory over sin and death. Jesus is glorified. God is glorified in His Son. And He says it's going to happen at once or immediately. And Jesus then continues, verse 33, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. And you have this sense that Jesus is just speaking to his disciples, um, like his family, my little children, this note of warmth and affection in his voice. And he's making it very clear that he would, in fact, be leaving them. He says, I will be with you only a little longer. And so what he's sharing here is his final farewell. And this reality adds weight to these words. Listen to these words. They are important, he's saying. Now, none of us know the day or the hour of our passing. Jesus was anticipating it. He was God. He knew what was going to happen. And so only God knows about our lives as well. The psalmist uh, David in Psalm uh, 31, 15 says, My times are in your hands. Friends, that's true for every single one of us. I remember when my mom passed, it'll be 11 years this May, and she had a battle with cancer and when they had determined that chemo wasn't going to help anymore and that it was really only a matter of time and they gave her two weeks, uh, those two weeks became nine weeks. And, you know, just going to the hospital virtually every day, spending time with mom, taking shifts with, with my siblings and, and, and being there. Those were just precious, precious times. She was so ready. She knew what was about to come. And, and, and in just the time, the quantity of time, there were these incredible times of, of um, that, that I just remember so fondly. Some were hilarious. Some were just things that she, she said to me. And some of you know the story that um, <clears throat> she pulled me aside and she goes, you know, in um, this dresser drawer, she told me which one, there's an envelope where I've kept a little bit of grocery money over the years. There's some money there. There's probably enough for you to buy a new suit. Uh, you know, go, go buy a suit so that you have a new suit to wear at my funeral. That's how she was preparing. And so some of you know that kind of in honor of my mom, I wear a suit on Christmas Eve. And um, <clears throat> I know she'd want me to wear one every week, but that's going a little too far. <clears throat> And I don't know about you, and and obviously none of us can control when our days are up. But I hope that I have some time. I hope that I can have time with Tina, with the kids, maybe with friends. Because when you can prepare for that, you have important conversations. You have an opportunity to express love. And maybe you're thinking this morning, man, this is, this is pretty morbid and depressing. Like, what are you on about? And maybe if it wasn't for the harsh reality of this week's events, I wouldn't even be thinking about this. But since we don't know when, I think each of us need to be prepared. Uh, you know, the writer of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 2, he says, Death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Right? The ultimate statistic is that one out of one of us will pass away, and, and that we can only think about that when we are, in fact alive. And friends, this is completely a, apart from anything that I wanted to say this morning, but I thought about it, that even this just this morning, so I added it, and I thought, you know, here's a simple takeaway: Make your goodbyes count. Make your goodbyes count. When you're leaving for school in the morning or leaving for work or whatever it is, maybe you would make sure you kiss your spouse goodbye. Maybe you hug your kids or maybe you kiss your kids and hug your spouse or whatever it is. That we would be mindful of the words that we use because we don't know what our last words are going to be. And those last words carry weight and importance and something your loved ones will always remember. I've been in pretty much constant contact with Val through this. And, you know, I was visiting Bob on Thursday with with Val, and um, it was hard. And uh, he was pretty much incoherent, falling asleep continually. And when he did say something, it made no sense at all. Um, And it was just hard to see a man who I've come to love and respect, who was wise. And whenever he spoke up in a meeting, you could just say, okay, Bob said it, it must be true, it must be good, it must be right, that's what we should do. Um, so that was hard. Val goes back the next morning, and he's completely lucid. And and she's telling him about the last couple of days and what it was like. And um, and uh, in fact, he was lucid enough to fight with the doctors about his treatment plan. <laughs> But I remember Val just saying in a text, it feels like it was a real gift. Those are incredible gifts. You see, John remembered what Jesus said as he was preparing to leave his disciples. So he wrote it down. It's recorded for us. And what we find here is, first of all, a command to obey and then later later, a commitment to observe command to obey. Jesus doesn't present this as an invitation, right? It's not like, well, would you kindly consider loving one another? He doesn't even present it as a suggestion. Suggestion, no. You should really consider loving one another. Not at all. He is direct and to the point. If you have your Bibles open, you can look at verses 34 and 35, or you can just wait for it to come up on the screen because, well, there it is. A new command I give you, he makes it clear, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And I wonder if, if Jesus, as he was telling his disciples, they're gathered around the table there, if he looks at them and he's maybe motioning with his hands, like, like you guys, you my followers, you, you love one another. Love one another. This is my command. Do it. It, it. it isn't optional. In the community of my followers, love is the most important thing. Now, there were so many thoughts as I was reflecting on this and just praying about, what do I say? And I, I have to think that this statement, this experience, even for Peter, was, was ex- very impactful. Because later, Peter would write these words in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. He says, above all, right? So, so, Jesus highlighted this command. Now, above all, above everything else, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. And when Jesus says this, he isn't referring to some sentimental feelings we might have for one another. In fact, he had just set the standard for love. And so he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you. What had he just done? He had modeled for them humble service. He identified their need. They had dirty, stinky feet. So he took a towel and a basin, and he got down before them and washed their feet. We have been emphasizing that the church is a community. It's it's a family that you belong to. Church is, is not something that you simply attend. Now, if you wanted to, you could do that. You could come, you could leave your coat on, and probably some of you are glad you are because the heat isn't working in here if you haven't noticed uh, this morning. But you can take in the service. You can slip out quietly at the end. You don't have to make contact with, with anyone. And you can just do that week after week if you wanted. Or you could watch online without taking any steps to plug into a small group or become involved somehow in some way in the life of the church. You can do that, and we are thankful that you're here, or that you're there, or you're, you're somewhere. But that's not what we believe the New Testament church should be. We believe that you're missing out if that's the way you approach church. Because in order to actually do the new commandment that Jesus is giving us, in order to love one another, in order to have rich and a deep experience of community, we need to find ourselves together. Not always in a, in a large group like this, but in small groups. When you serve on a team, you rub shoulders with others. Maybe you intentionally find two other people and start a triad where you, where you get together for the express purpose of encouraging one another in your walk with Jesus. Jesus. But it's in a smaller setting that that you can be vulnerable, that you can be honest and authentic, where you can ask others to pray for you and be specific about that. Maybe there's a personal burden that you're carrying or a struggle that you're wrestling with, but it's in the context in which we then ultimately can really love one another. Having these deep relationships that when others may walk away, we run into those situations where there is death or divorce or unemployment or illness, when we push into those things and help one another out through those challenges, that's what church is. <clears throat> you see, <laughs> I'm looking at my notes here, and I was wrestling with whether I would, would share this, this or not. Um, so let me just collect myself to see if I should or not. Usually if I, if I have this check that I shouldn't, I shouldn't. Um, but oftentimes I don't listen, I do anyways. And I'm like, oh man, why did I say that? Um, um, let me just think this here, sorry. Um, well, let me put it, let me, let me not share this story. Let me share this other one. So imagine you are um, uh, somebody who plays for the Oilers. And you see this happen all the time if you watch the hockey. Um, and and a professional hockey player just makes a glaring mistake, right? And, and there's a couple of people that can respond to that. There's usually the guy in the stands that's like just yelling and upset and angry about that. Or or later on, you see him on Twitter, of all places, just ripping on the guy and just like, he is absolutely terrible. You know, trade the bum. You know, hopefully you can get a bag of pucks for him or something, right? And And they're just mean and nasty. Or you have a, sometimes you see this even happen in the course of a game. They'll pan to the bench and The guy who made the mistake and somebody's beside him and sometimes he'll just get a tap on the shoulder or they even get into an animated discussion sometimes. You can tell maybe there's some frustration. You know for certain that the coaches probably pull that player aside and say, hey, let's talk about what happened last night. And then they, you know, probably the painful step-by-step slow-motion video of this is what you did and maybe this is what you shouldn't have done. But what's the whole point of it? It's about correction. Of those two responses, which one carries more weight? It's the one that you have the relationship with, right? And it's critical to have those kind of relationships in our faith journey. People who will come alongside and encourage us when we stumble and when we fall. People who will hold us accountable when needed. People who will come alongside us and support us when we need that and so church this is just another reminder and i say another reminder because pastor adam at the end of october had a great message on a community of love and then when we got into east into advent series we again talked about having a community of love and how do we mature and it's just something that's woven throughout the bible that we can't quite get away from to be reminded that we have a responsibility to serve one another to love one another and church we do that well. I really do believe we do that well. It's like Paul writing to the Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4 and 10. He says, you know, you do love. This is great. You, you're doing an outstanding job in loving. But then he says, but do so more and more, right? There's always an encouragement for us to love more and more. And why is love in the context of followers of Jesus, so important? Well, it's because, in essence, the world is watching. Jesus says, if you love one another, everyone, not just a few, some demographic, he says, everyone will know that you are my disciples. In other words, love is a distinguishing mark of the follower of Jesus. Francis Schaeffer calls love the mark of the Christian. That's what ultimately defines us. And so you see there's this evangelistic approach toward loving one another. Because in no other context do people with such diversity as you see in a room like this come together. Other organizations are often based on, on common interests. You, you like doing the same thing. So maybe you join a bowling league or or you go to men's golfing night, but you typically always maybe golf with your same golfing buddies. People like you. But the church is different because we have different personalities too. And if we're, we're honest, it's often people that we're different from that rub us the wrong way. And we're just like, I, I don't know if I want to be in a small group with that person. But this difference extends to so many aspects of our diversity. We come from so many different backgrounds. It's one of the things I love doing at brunch is just saying, tell me your story. And we have so many, you know, immigrants at our church, people who've, who have come and become residents of Canada. They're Canadians, and we embrace you, and we love you. And I love hearing your stories of incredible risk and resilience. Take the opportunity to get to know one another. But we have differences of, of age. Recently, we had a men's breakfast, and I think the youngest there was 16, and the oldest was in their mid-80s. I love that kind of diversity. Gender, color, social status, influence, intelligence, religious background, or even the lack thereof. And the point is, is that when others outside the church or outside the faith, when they witness This love that people have for one another, it's a powerful testimony. You see, loving one another isn't always convenient or comfortable. This love is expressed in a life of servanthood and self-sacrificing service. And love chooses to act in profound ways. Washed any feet recently? So let me ask you... Who is God calling you to love? If if you pray to God and just say, well, "Who is that person that I need to extend a relationship to? That I might need to get connected with?" Friends, I just encourage you find a place where you can really love others, even if it's not easy because quite simply, that's what followers of Jesus do, and that is a command to obey. We also have a commitment to observe, a commitment to observe, starting in verse 36. There's a pretty interesting exchange that takes place between Peter and Jesus. Peter doesn't respond to Jesus' command uh, to obey, he kind of like, okay, I get it, or he skipped over it and doesn't want to do that. But he says, he goes back, actually, to what he said before. And it's like, Jesus, um, can I go back to something that you said earlier? You said that you were going somewhere and that we can't go with you. Can I ask, where are you going? And so Jesus responds, and he says, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. So where is Jesus going? Well, we know that he's heading to the cross. He knows what he's about to experience, and so he tells Peter, you can't, in fact, you, you don't want to follow me. But Then he adds, but you will. It's interesting to to look a little deeper into that. So what's happening here, in fact, is Jesus is foreshadowing Peter's own death as a martyr. And he refers to this again later in chapter 21 and verses 18 to 19, where, where John writes, Very truly I tell you, this is Jesus again talking to Peter. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, which is believed to be a reference to him dying uh, through crucifixion, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this, he says, to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. So, here is Peter declaring his commitment. It's not going to happen now, But ultimately, Peter would die for his faith, because of his faith. And church tradition is that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. And only Jesus' prophecy gives us some idea of how Peter would die. And so, you know, again, it's just tradition. It's not not fact. But that's not really the point that I want to make here. What is significant is the commitment that Peter makes that I want us to observe, Again, picking it up at verse 37, Peter then asks, Well, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Right? He's expressing his all-out commitment to Jesus. I will lay down my life for you. And Peter, in committing his willingness to die for Jesus, is really here expressing his loyalty to Jesus. He's not making this up. He really believes this. He is passionate about this. But Jesus knows Peter all too well. He's heard these bold commitments before, and so Jesus kind of calls him on it. Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So Jesus here is predicting that despite Peter's in best intentions, besides his expression of commitment, that Peter would in fact later deny him. So, spoiler alert, <clears throat> John 18 records Peter's actual denial. And even though Peter confidently expressed his commitment to Jesus, on that occasion he's simply pushed over by a servant girl who simply asks, you aren't one of His disciples, too, are you? <laughs> nope. I am not. There's one denial. And there were others standing around this fire to keep warm, and then they asked, You aren't one of His disciples, too, are you? Nope. I'm not. And then he's questioned again. <clears throat> this time by a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off when they came to, to arrest Jesus. And he recognizes him. He says, you're the guy with the sword. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Just as Judas was known for betraying Jesus, Peter was known for denying him. And there are some parallels between the two and some differences I found what one commentator, Bruce Mill, wrote was was very interesting. I just want to share it. He said, both, that is both Judas and Peter, had associated with Jesus across the previous years. Both had seen his signs and heard his truth. To both he gave his love and extended his appeal. In the final hours of Jesus' mission, both abysmally failed him and abandoned him in the hour of his greatest need. Both grieved Jesus' heart and added to his pain. The failure of both was spectacularly public, he writes. Both are known today around the world for the failures they perpetrated. One, however, was lost and the other saved. One repented, sought Christ's mercy, and went to heaven. One, overwhelmed with remorse, turned upon himself, took his own life, and went unforgiven to hell. You know, we need to be careful not to look smugly down from the chairlift and say, that'll never happen to me. I think we wrongly give Peter a bad rap. We often wonder how he can go from such a confident commitment to such a blatant denial. And we think, I would never do that. And let's not forget, Peter loved Jesus. He loved him passionately. He had followed him for three years. He wanted to continue to follow him. He wanted to be loyal. This was the expression of his heart because Jesus has touched his life and he changed it. And he walked closely with Jesus. He was dialed in. He was all in. And yet, in a moment of weakness, he denied him. And if we're really honest with ourselves, I think we would admit that we know all too well how easy it is to deny Jesus and even to betray Him. Like we sang in the hymn this morning, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You see, any one of us can fall in an instant And we cannot be so proud to think that it could never happen to me. But all we can do is rely on His mercy, knowing that there is nothing that can ever separate us from the love of God. Humbly relying on the strength that Jesus alone provides. Because in fact, only Jesus can help us keep our commitment to Him. And it's only by His power That we will stand. Friends, we can strengthen our commitment. We can make these bold declarations, and then sometimes tomorrow comes and we're not following Jesus the way we thought we would. And so we've been suggesting earlier this year that one of the ways to maybe structure some of our commitments, some of our rhythms and practices, is through a rule of life. And a rule of life is simply a way to order some of these um, practices. And I think there's three that I want to just share with you very quickly because you're wondering, like, how does this happen? And I just want to say this. Number one, through prayer. You see, we need to spend time with Jesus, simply put. And it's not just coming, sitting down quickly, running through our list of needs and wants. Sometimes it's just sitting and listening and waiting for God to whisper um, his love, his truth into into our own lives, um, but prayer, as we know, is just absolutely vital. We become very vulnerable when we start skipping that practice, and so we need to be aware another practice is fasting it 's through fasting or saying no. Uh, particularly to food. Maybe there's other things that we need to abstain from, and I draw that distinction, that fasting related to food, abstaining from other things. And as we head, uh, uh, in mid-February, we'll move um, uh, into the Lenten season, the church calendar that we want to follow, and uh, we're going to invite you again as a congregation to fast. because, And and what we do is we say, for a 24-hour fast, your last meal will be uh, Wednesday at supper time, and then skip breakfast, skip lunch, and then have supper Thursday again to kind of break the fast. <clears throat> but the invitation there is for us to just deny ourselves. Not Jesus, but ourselves. To say no, to exercise that no muscle and we'll give you more about that but that's a practice that you don't have to wait to do something church-wide or to wait and just do it for those 40 days of land it's something that you could practice on a on a regular basis maybe there's something that you know in fact actually hinders your walk with Jesus and you need to ask yourself is that something <clears throat> that I need to start saying no to and thirdly sabbath pastor adam had a great message on sabbath a few weeks ago this past week uh, the staff went to camp caroline to a retreat mark buchanan was a speaker a phenomenal speaker he's a writer too maybe you've read some of his books he's currently a professor of pastoral theology at ambrose um, university in calgary And one of the things that he said that really, you know, it was funny watching our staff because we're kind of looking at each other kind of knowingly or nodding that, oh yeah, we're way ahead of you, Mark, because we've been talking about, about Sabbath for a while and realizing how important it is. But one of the things that he said that just stuck with me, he says, when you get tired, when your soul is tired, you stop loving what you love. You stop loving what you love. And if you think in your own life, there's probably times where you've been just exhausted emotionally, spiritually, physically, every way, and even those things that you love to do, um, you don't love anymore. And like Mary, the invitation is to come and to sit at the feet of Jesus, to take one day in seven to rest and to renew, and really to receive Sabbath as a gift. I use this little phrase, this is something we get to do, not something we have to do that it's out of obligation. But it's a gift to receive. So friends, in this passage this morning, we have a command to obey. So who are you going to love? Who are you going to love? And a commitment to observe. How will you extend your commitment to Jesus through intentional practices? It's fitting that today we are going to gather around the Lord's table and have communion together. And I hope that as you entered, you saw the two tables with the uh, the little um, prepackaged cups. Um, <clears throat> if you need one of those, the ushers have some. And just raise your hand. We want to distribute this right now. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. So you need to have one of the little prepackaged cups. But I think it's so fitting for us to to gather there to really end up where we started today to be reminded. Of all that Jesus has done for us. Right? Jesus was glorified. We talked about that earlier in the message. He had victory over death and sin. And we are the recipients of that. And so I'm going to invite you this morning, as the worship team will lead us in a song. You could choose to sing along, but. Maybe better just leave that as sort of background music and just prepare your own heart and maybe to take the time to respond to the message in some way. And so maybe it starts with, Lord, who is it that you're calling me to love? And then maybe a more difficult question, not that that might might be challenging in in and of itself, but where have I denied or betrayed you? Where in my actions, where in my thoughts, where you know, in the words that I've chosen to use, where have I denied or betrayed you? You see, when we fall, when we fail to obey, when we make commitments that we don't keep, we know that there's someone who forgives us, who helps us up, who restores us. Ultimately, that's the testimony of Peter. Because it doesn't end with his denying Jesus It ends in chapter 21 with Jesus restoring Peter. That's love, my friends. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's live into that relationship with a command to obey and a commitment to observe and practice.